Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's episode is with Professor Paul Post from the University of Chicago. Uh, this is going to be the first of a two-part uh, two-part series with Professor Post. Um, I took this episode, which is about an hour long, and I decided to split it in two, uh, just so it's a bit more digestible for the for the listener. So, uh, again, this is just one conversation. It's going to be split into two episodes, uh, but I think it's a it's a fascinating discussion with Professor Post, and I and I hope you uh, enjoy it. All right. Good afternoon, and uh, welcome back to the Revolution of Military Affairs podcast. Today on the podcast, we have uh, professor, professor Paul Post. He's the associate professor in political sci- in the in the political science department at the University of Chicago. And uh, you know, it's a pleasure to have uh, have you on the podcast, Paul. The uh, I first came across your work uh, on social media. I saw people posting and resharing and commenting and. Uh, probably slandering you to a degree also, just because that's the way that goes on social media. 
specifically on Twitter, as you've as you've commented on all the things that are going on in the uh, the international system today. So, Paul, just uh, thank you for your time today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely, it's a pleasure being on the program. So, just uh, real quick with the the social media thing, I just wanted to ask you about that because I think it's actually a really useful tool, and I think as a professor, it's 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 a smart way to go about engaging. A, with the material, but B, with a larger audience um, outside of the small clique of, you know, political scientists and international relations students that you probably deal with. So how did that how did that come about? And uh, have you gotten positive feedback? I'm sure you've gotten a lot of negative feedback. So I'm just interested on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you asked about the social media side of things. And I should add that the vast majority um, close to unanimous feedback is is positive. Um, and indeed, I've even been recognized by one of our professional associations, the International mm-hmm. Studies Association, for my Twitter account, um, now X, but I'm still calling it yeah. for some platform formerly known as Twitter. Um, I'm right there with and, you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I've received just a lot of positive feedback in that regard, also from my university. And so in that sense, um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously something that encourages me a lot. And the other thing that encourages me to continue to do this is the fact that it connects me to individuals like yourself and and generates these kind of opportunities to reach out to an audience that I wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to be able to reach out to. And so that's a major reason why I like engaging on social media. Having said that, the main reason I started with social media, I I started with Twitter back in 2018, was I was planning to use it as a way to generate new content, and if you will, even live content for my teaching, Uh, and specifically thinking about my undergraduates, I teach the large intro to international relations course at the University of Chicago, and I thought this could be a good way to generate content for that course in a way that moves beyond the traditional textbook format. Mm-hmm. And so actually what I would do is I made that where my students had to follow, they didn't have to follow me on Twitter, but they had to check yes. out certain things that I would post on my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually one of the reasons why I liked using Twitter was because Twitter was one of the platforms where you did not have to have an account in order to be able mm-hmm. to see the content. I could just simply share the links to the students. and. You know, if students wanted to have a Twitter account or and wanted to follow me, they could, but they could also just read this the respective threads that I would write on certain IR topics. They could read it themselves. But what I found was that people beyond my class were really finding this useful. And so that started to generate more momentum, if you will, to continue to do this and to produce even more content. And that is really, since then, it's really been notable to me, the number of people who find my content useful. And this ranges from graduate students at other universities, the general public, think tanks, media, as well as my colleagues in international relations, other faculty elsewhere. And so to me, it's really become a a rewarding thing to be able to do to be able to use that platform to help inform international debates about international affairs and share with people to help them understand how someone who uses social science to study international politics actually does that. And so that's, that's for me, has been one of the rewarding things about 
using social media. Yeah, I think that it's been really helpful for me too as a international relations uh, student myself, um, because it's you know you've pointed out different things over the course of I, you know I can't give you a specific example right now, but over the course of all these different threads you've posted different things that I've been like, oh, hmm, I need to go look at that and do some more research in that area. And so I found, uh, personally, I found it very, very useful. So I'm glad that it's, uh, I'm glad that it's gotten the recognition that it deserves because I think it's a very valuable tool and something more educators probably would be uh, uh, well-suited to uh, to employ. So shifting off of that, but I guess sort of tied to that, I want to talk a bit about uh, alliances. And so you've got this great book, uh, arguing about alliances, the art of agreement and military pact negotiations that you published a few years ago. And I, I think it's terrific because there's a lot of debate about what alliances are, what they aren't are, coalitions, proxies, partners, all these different things. And as somebody that's working on a PhD in international relations, but my focus is on proxies and proxy wars, this is a debate I get into all the time too. And one of the... <laughs> An interesting side story to that, uh, when I was looking into my PhD programs and I was meeting with potential advisors, uh, one of the one of the people that I uh, met with, I was introducing the topic and talking through it, and he said, and he wasn't he was not an American, and he said, "You Americans are all the same. You want to put everything in nice little boxes, and what you're really talking about isn't a proxy war or proxies. It's it's alliances and varying degrees of alliances." And then he proceeded to spend like the next 90 minutes browbeating me about how I was incorrect. So needless to say, I did not go that direction with my uh, PhD. Um, I went in that direction with the, the material, not with that individual nor that school. But I say all that to say, um, so my takeaway from this, and I'm going to go shorthand real quick so that you can then kind of explain it in a bit more detail. But... As I understand it, uh, based off what you've written, it's uh, that alliances are the product of alliance treaties, and that alliance treaties alliance treaties are essentially joint war plans. Did I get that correct? And if uh, if so, and if not, would you just uh, elaborate a bit more on that? No, you absolutely got it correct. And I think there's a couple points that are worth highlighting. But again, in terms of a bumper sticker summary of the book, that was perfect. The main idea behind the book is in some ways to really get at exactly what is going on when states are forming alliances. Hmm. And a good way to think about why a book about this would be useful is to think about two things as they stand with respect to the literature on alliances, meaning scholars who have studied alliances, which of course this is a, one of the oldest strands of international relations literature. So, Around the time that I'm writing this book, one of the most prominent ideas about alliances is that alliances are a form of signaling. You sign one of these treaties in order to signal to somebody else that, hey, I am defending or I am being defended by this other country, right? And so, hence, the U.S. having having NATO with the various European countries is strictly a signal to first the Soviet Union and now Russia that the U.S. will support them and back them. And so it's very much about the signaling argument. That's the first strand to keep in mind. The other strand to keep in mind is that a lot of people would look at the groupings of states in the world as 
falling into two camps. One is groups that have these alliances and are sending these signals and groups that do not have these alliances. So where this book came in was it did two things. First of all, it pointed out that there's actually a third group, which is groups of states that tried to form alliances and didn't get mm -hmm. the job done. Yeah. And then the other thing it did is in the process of saying, well, why is it that they didn't get the job done? What is it that they couldn't agree on when they came to negotiate? Well, then that's what led me to say, you know what? It's not about if you actually start looking at the negotiations themselves, they're not talking about signaling. They're not talking about, oh, we got to send a message to the Russians. You got to do this. It turns out that there's lots of ways. If you, I mean, that's not to say that's not a goal. Right. that policymakers will have, but there's lots of ways that you can send a message to the Russians that, hey, we're going to guard the Western Europeans, don't invade. There's, you could have unilateral declarations in that respect. You could just simply station troops there, have some sort of agreement that allows that. There's lots of ways you can do it. When it comes to the treaties, what they're talking about during those negotiations are war plans. They're talking mm -hmm. about what do we want to accomplish if war breaks out. Now, when I say war plans, and I go into detail about this in the book, it's not necessarily war plans at what we would call the tactical level, right? Yeah. It's not necessarily sitting there saying, okay, we will send you know, 50,000 troops through this gap here and all that. Sometimes it can get to that, and sometimes that's even written to the treaties. But it really starts at the other levels of war plans. It starts at the strategic level of like, okay, yeah. who are we guarding against? What territory, like what counts? So in the case of NATO, what will count as North Atlantic? Who gets covered by this treaty? That's a big part of it. And then they could go into some of these other details. And indeed, you see treaties where they do. And then there's other ones, like the case of the North Atlantic Treaty, where they just punt on it. And they just put in an article that says, we're going to create some body that will handle all that later on. Right. But at the end of the day, what you notice when you start reading through and studying the actual negotiations what you see is that's what they're talking about during these negotiations. And what's interesting is sometimes that's not even things they're talking about that might even consume a lot of the negotiations don't even show up in the treaty. So hence the North Atlantic Treaty never mentions the Soviet Union. It never mentions Russia, but it's brought up a lot during the actual negotiations. Or like something I point out in the case study of the book, a big thing they kept talking about over and over again, they kept just putting it off because it was such a troublesome issue, was Italy. What do we do about Italy? Do we bring it in? They even refer to it as the Italian problem. And every summary report after each round of negotiations had an appendix that said like status of the Italian problem. The reason why is because Italy, they had just all fought a war against them. And they're like, and they've been demilitarized. So they're like, you know, do we bring them in? Do we not? Do we keep them out? France was really pushing for them to come in. The British and the Americans are like, ah, we're not so sure. But if you read the North Atlantic Treaty, you don't see any of that in it. You know, you, you do recognize eventually, yeah, Italy is one of the founding members, but you don't get a sense of how during the negotiations, this was like yeah. an all-consuming issue. So that overall is what this book is about and kind of elaborates a little bit on the kind of the excellent bumper sticker summary that you provided. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a very useful breakdown of that. And I think it, uh, it helps explain it a lot. And I really do think that this book is, uh, it does a good job at getting to the heart of that. And that's, you know, as I worked on, on uh, studying alliances and uh, as, as it pertains to my own work on proxy war, that's, um, the, the, there was a lot of elements that I pulled out of here that I hadn't um, seen in other places. So with that said, again, I've, I've kind of alluded to it already. 
Uh, how do alliances differ from coalitions and partnerships and proxy principal proxy relationships? So this is a huge issue. Um, and by a huge issue, I mean like it is as an academic or someone who studies this, a, a foreign affairs analyst, you're like, oh my gosh, can we make sure we're using our terminology correctly here, right? <laughs> because yeah. you'll see. And, and I think a good way to approach this question is the term allies, right? We hear this phrase used all the time. And in fact, I'm involved in a um, co-author project right now that we're working on where we're trying to unpack like exactly what is meant and what do people think when they're using the word allies. And the reason why is because, and I think this ties very nicely to your work, mm -hmm. is you will hear, hear members of Congress refer to allies as a whole host of different actors. They'll call oh, yeah. them allies, right? So, for example, going back to when Donald Trump made the decision to um, essentially, quote, abandon the Kurds in yeah. Syria, <laughs> you had Lindsey Graham saying he is abandoning our Kurdish allies, right? You also see similar language used to refer to Ukraine, you know, our Ukrainian allies, right? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But of course, we also use that language to refer to NATO members. And what's really interesting is in the case of if you go back to the Kurds in Syria, we did that in deference to an actual treaty ally, which is, of course, Turkey. Turkey. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you can see right away we're using the word ally to refer to a bunch of different actors with whom we have different relationships. Some of them are codified in actual ratified treaty. That's mm -hmm. usually what we refer to as an actual alliance. That is an ally in the form of an alliance that is NATO, for example most prominent example. But then we also have countries with whom we have like these military affairs partnerships, might even have memorandums with them. That would be more in the line with Ukraine. We're not a treaty ally. They're not a member of NATO, but we get lots of support. We have understandings with them. We've signed agreements that have where we've backstop security for them. Right. This is you know very prominent in that sense. So you can think about um you know, whether it's the Budapest Memorandum or the Bucharest Memorandum, both of these are examples of where the U.S. or NATO countries have essentially made some commitments, security commitments towards them, but not in the form of an actual treaty. And then yeah. you have more of these understandings that may not be written down, but this would be what the U.S. typically has with a variety of proxy groups that we would yeah. be supporting or non-state groups where we might have a relationship with them, but it's not a codified treaty. We might be working with them. 
So this would be, you know, uh, the Kurds in Syria. This would be the Northern Alliance back with the initial invasion of Afghanistan, where we have this understanding we're working with them. They're partners, but they're not at the level of a treaty ally. And so as a result, there's a different, you know, there's a there's different dynamics involved in terms of what could it mean for your reputation? What are you trying to achieve out of it? How long term do you see this relationship as lasting? Obviously, if you're signing a treaty, you probably have a more expectations. You're even trying to work out more long term what could be happening. If it's just a verbal understanding, then that would naturally imply this is short term, just marriage of convenience. We're working together to get something accomplished. And a lot of times that's also what happens, not just with non-state actors, but with states when you see coalitions formed, right? We think about the coalition that was created back in 1990-91 to move Iraq out of Kuwait. That was Mm -hmm. a coalition, short term, the U.S. went around, James Baker doing a lot of um, shuttle diplomacy to try to pull countries on board with that. But it was just for a very distinct purpose one-time thing. And yes, some of the countries in that coalition were treaty allies. Some of them were not. But the point is, is it's just this one mission. We need this help. Let's have this understanding. We're not going to write anything down, but let's go ahead and make this happen. And that's where a coalition can come in. So yeah, I think it's useful to make distinctions between these different concepts and these different types of relationships even though if you go to D.C., you're going to hear the word ally used yeah. to describe all of these relationships. Yeah, it seems like it's almost used in a, in a hyperbolic sense to uh, elicit emotion more so than it is to actually define the, uh, the relationship itself. The, uh, the comment on the Kurds, I, I, I love that you brought that up because <clears throat> I, I was working uh, shortly around that time, shortly before actually, uh, the, the time that you mentioned, I was I was in Iraq. I worked at uh, the the coalition headquarters uh, there in Baghdad, uh, fighting the fight against ISIS in the, in the tail end of the Battle of Mosul, and then through uh, uh, through the period that uh, you know when uh, Prime Minister Abadi declared that ISIS had been defeated, and then uh, we started negotiating a drawdown. And so during that time, uh, that was when the Kurds um, were attacked by. Um, Turkey, right? The Operation Olive Branch was launched, and they came into uh, uh, Irpin and and uh, Mambich and all those areas in that northern Syrian corridor there. And uh, it was just it was it was really interesting to see that dynamic unfold because you know a lot of what you said was was the words that were used didn't match the relationship that existed, and that I think is part of the problem too. We're so uncomfortable, we being Western states in many regards, are so uncomfortable calling something what it is right that's a proxy you know it's not a it's not a bad word i know that there's a a lot of negative connotation associated with it but let's just call it what it is because then we can understand uh, better what we're dealing with you know and like that that situation i thought was very interesting in my in my own research i've I've cited it several times because what you had you know (laughs) there was an also some interesting dynamics too where you had that going on but then you had coalition alliance members in the headquarters that then had to be excused from certain conversations that pertain to that problem because of what was going on. Uh, and I'm being vague on purpose, but it's not hard to figure out who I'm referring to here. Right. Um, and so anyway, as part of that too, though, you had, um, you, you had, um, you know, the Kurds. So we had this relationship with the Kurds there in Syria fighting ISIS out in the, out in the Eastern deserts. And, you know, when, when, when Turkey attacks into Syria, attacks into that Kurdistan region there, uh, 
the Kurds just kind of wave goodbye and they go north to protect their their people. And we were left, uh, there was many questions, you know, at higher levels of command, like what what is going on here? And it goes back to that that thing, eh, the formality of the, the agreement, but it's also like that divergent interests come into play, right? And their strategic interests were no longer a marriage of convenience with our own, you know, like, hey, let's eliminate ISIS out here in this Kurdish area. Now we have a somewhat existential threat from a true military force coming in from the north. We're going to pause this relationship. And so you saw several operational pauses in the war fighting against ISIS out there in eastern Syria during that time. And I thought that that was... It was fascinating to be in the headquarters and to see everybody just kind of like, well, what's going on? They didn't understand it because they're like, they're our ally. I'm like, they're not our ally. You know, they're no. they're a proxy in a fight against a common enemy. Exactly. Um, so- yeah, exactly. And I think you know what that highlights is you. this is exactly why, on the flip side, it's important to have a relationship like a NATO relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, okay – we have in Brussels or just outside of Brussels, we're going to meet and we're going to talk about these issues. And we have, you know, commanders that we have representatives there all the time and we can hash out if there's a problem, someone feels like they need to shift resources another place. We're going to coordinate on that. And the reason why is because we have this infrastructure in place. We have this long-term relationship and that's, that that kind of infrastructure, of course, wasn't there when it comes to deal with the Kurds, but it's because it's a completely different type of relationship, right? And so I think that this is so critical for this. I think your example is a great one for kind of highlighting, again, why these distinctions aren't just a matter of words. They actually yeah. are meaningful in terms of thinking about what you can expect out of the relationship. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one of the big findings that I've had uh, with my work on, on proxies is uh, uh, yeah, I bucket it. Basically, there's five types of proxy relationship. There's a couple different things that factor into that. And then within those, each one of those relationships, there's a different type of expectation on the duration and level of risk that that proxy will assume uh, with you. And uh, so anyway, moving on from that, since we're talking about weird relationships, uh, you, you've commented a lot about the Russo-Ukrainian war. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. As it relates to this uh, topic here that we're discussing with alliances, so uh, how would you categor- categorize the U.S.-Ukraine relationship? I know you kind of you touched on it briefly uh, when you were talking before, but you, could you explain it in a bit more detail? So on the one hand, some people have obviously referred to this as a proxy relationship, mm-hmm. right? They even refer to the war as a proxy war, that this is really a, a NATO-Russia war, but it's being fought the United States and and really the United States is what people are referring to here, but the U.S. and yeah. NATO are fighting Russia, but through Ukraine. This has even led to the um, you know comments being made that the U.S. is willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. You know these kind of comments that have been made, and people have been saying that type. So that's all, that's one view that's out yeah. there about this relationship, right? It's this it's a proxy relationship. Um, on the other hand, there's the view. I, I think that that view. I think there is a there is some nuggets and elements of that that are accurate, um, yeah. and you can indeed see even the rhetoric if you look at some of the U.S. senators that have gone and met with Zelensky, and then they'll come back and say this is an investment, right? You know, we're they're fighting, and look at this, we're we're 
the money we're spending and giving to Ukraine is allowing us to weaken an enemy, and this is great. So th those are the kind of comments that feed into the view of, oh, this is just a proxy relationship. But I do think the relationship is deeper than that. Um, it's obviously not at the level of a NATO relationship, though obviously this is something that Ukraine wants. And indeed, I think this is something that there are officials in the U.S. that would eventually like to see that, though they recognize that is not going to happen under current circumstances. Yeah. But I think the, I do think the relationship is more than just simply, hey, this is a convenient short-term proxy that we can use to fight Russia. It's deeper than that. And the reason why is because of the longstanding relationship that the European countries have had vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, and then in turn that the U.S. has developed with Ukraine. You know, I think a lot of people miss sight, and, and, and it's kind of funny, like they shouldn't, but a lot of people miss sight of the fact that the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine yeah. since, you know, 2014 when the Crimean Peninsula was taken. But even going back further to where in 2008, the U.S. and NATO countries are making a promise that eventually Georgia and Ukraine will become NATO members. And so the relationship goes back much further than that. The, and indeed, some people even forget that the first impeachment of President Trump was over aid to yeah. Ukraine. You know, that it's like this is, yeah. this is a relationship that well predates 2022. So I think that the relationship is deeper than just a simple proxy relationship, convenient, hey, we can you know, bleed Russia dry by arming Ukraine. But it's obviously not at the level of a U.S. alliance vis-a-vis, -vis, say, NATO or you know, with Japan, Philippines, and, and so maybe even you know, another state that has kind of an ambiguous relationship with Taiwan, right, where the U.S. has kind of a it has a treaty in place, one that President Biden has reaffirmed many times. But obviously, we have this kind of ambiguous relationship with Taiwan, or at least we maintain an ambiguous status of what exactly yeah. Taiwan is. So I think that Ukraine very much fits in the middle. It, it's not fair to label this as just a simple proxy war and that we're using them for this reason. But it's also clear that they're not at this level as say our NATO allies and so on and so forth. I tend towards the side, but again, it goes back to how I've classified proxies and whatnot in my 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 work. I classify it as a proxy relationship and a proxy strategy within a larger war, but I also don't view it as just a flip of the coin. I, I don't think that things are as simple, and I think that that's what you're alluding to too. Things are not as simple as a binary this or that. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, when you talk about the it being greater than a proxy relationship, one of the things I think that does help legitimize that too, uh, from a from a military standpoint, is the establishment. Uh, initially, it was called Task Force Dragon, which was, uh, you know, a, a core level tack, a, a a forward command post that was there to help do things. I guess, you know, share intelligence and do other stuff. Um, you know, and it was under the command of uh, one of the deputy commanding generals of 18th Airborne Corps, One Star. But as we've formalized our relationship with Ukraine as that's gone on, I think it was, I forget the exact date, I think it was about a year ago, maybe a little further back, we stood up, uh, uh, it's called SAGU, the Security Assistance Group Ukraine. And that's a more formal headquarters now, a three-star level command where a three-star general is supervising and overseeing the security assistance that the U.S. is providing 
to Ukraine. And so, you know, that I think also pushes it further into that, you know, it's, it's, it's a soft alliance, if you will, um, or something, you know, and there's, I'm sure there's all sorts of paper signs somewhere that (laughs) actually formally lay that out. Yeah, it's much, it's not as, if it, I guess, like a key word we could use here is institutionalized. It's yeah. definitely not as institutionalized as a NATO relationship. You know, there's no yeah. big gleaming building that we all go to to talk about, <laughs> um, right. you know, the U.S. or NATO-Ukrainian uh, relationship. But at the same time, it is much more institutionalized than what you were referring to earlier with the relationship yeah. vis-a-vis the Kurds, right? You know, there is this... You know, established relationships, um, sharing, coordination, training that's going on, um, memorandums of understanding that have been signed to be able to help with the arming and so forth. There's a lot more involved than what would just be simply a marriage of convenience, short term relationship. But again, not at the level of the U.S.'s main treaty allies. That concludes part one of the two-part episode with Professor Paul Post from the University of Chicago. We'll conclude this episode in a week with a break uh, in between this episode and the second with uh, Professor Post uh, as we have another Hypergiant episode that, that, that splits these two. Thank you for listening to Revolution of Military Affairs. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.